Welcome to The Universe in a Glass, the podcast where we trade drinks with friends and share the stories behind our favorite beverages. We are joining you today from Revelers Hour in the heart of Adams Morgan in Washington, D.C. Uh, we are normally across the street at the Line Hotel, but today we have a very special guest joining us remotely. One Kelby Russell, a winemaker extraordinaire at Red News Cellars in the Finger Lakes region of New York. Kelby is a Finger Lakes native who never imagined coming home again. Uh, he attended Harvard uh, out of high school, graduated with a degree in government and economics. But after a job in the city fell through, he found himself lured back to the Finger Lakes by wine and He's remained there ever since. In addition to his duties as uh, head winemaker at Red Newt, Kelby is the driving force behind one of the driving forces behind FL Excursion, an international Riesling Expo held every other year in the Finger Lakes. Thank you for joining us, Kelby. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Did I miss anything for the sake of your CV? No, no, no. I, I think that that is a, a nice tidy summation. Okay, excellent, excellent. You're so much. You're so much more than just a winemaker, though. I, I you know, I want to make sure that people are giving you sufficient credit for all of your amazing extracurricular interests. Um, at any rate, for those of you who have not joined us in the past, the premise here, blessedly simple. Uh, we each have a bottle of wine to share with each other, and um, a couple unicorns today. Kelby has brought a bottle of his 2019 Finger Lakes Fino. Pinot Gris, um, which is an homage to the biologically aged wines of the Sherry region of Southern Spain. I've responded in kind with another, um, you know, kind of a diamond uh, of its own, a 2013 Chateau Chalon from Berthe Bonde. It's a beguiling wine from the foothills of the French Alps uh, that is also aged like sherry. Uh, we will taste through them both while trading thoughts about life and wine. Then I'll close things out with a bit of verse dedicated to one Kelby Russell. Um, thanks again, Kelby, for joining us remotely. Before we dive into these unicorns, uh, a few questions about your life in wine. Uh, where did you grow up, sir? I grew up uh, about 20 minutes north of what you might consider the the Finger Lakes region. Uh, I think actually in the AVA where I grew up and was born is considered part of it because uh, they use the Erie Canal as the northern border for the AVA uh, for the Finger Lakes. So I was, uh, you were born within the Finger Lakes American Viticultural Area. Yes, yes. Uh, as very broadly defined uh, yes, by yeah. the ETB, yes. Yeah, you could, I don't know that there's many grapevines planted on the banks <laughs> of the canal, but, uh, uh, but you know, the native grapes would have done great. So perhaps, perhaps. Oh, that's, that's brilliant. Uh, but but that's, uh, that is well west of where you currently sit in Geneva, is it not? Um, it is well, no, it's only about 15 minutes south. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. so I'm like Geneva, I was, I was going through Geneva, I don't know, a couple times a month as a kid. We'd come over for dinner or for shopping or things like that. Uh, oh wow! Was was Geneva the relevant like urban center, or would you go to? Are we more likely to go to Rochester. Uh, we would be more likely to go to Rochester. I mean, just just if only for size of population and size of city. You know, Geneva's generously called a city with fifteen thousand, <laughs> uh, and the Rochester metro is like I don't know three quarters of a million or something like that. Yeah, that's that's an actual metropolis. Yes, yes, <laughs> uh, brilliant. Um, you, you know, I imagine for the bulk of your life, uh, you know, spent 
your waking hours dreaming of escaping uh, your corner of the world. Uh, what did you dream of uh, when you were uh, younger in you know the suburbs of Rochester? What were you going to escape to? I am. I guess I didn't necessarily know, uh, but the bright lights of the city, I think, would yeah. probably be the, the, the easiest answer, right? I feel like uh, there's a, uh, like my favorite Tom and Jerry cartoon is a, is a kid was the one where uh, Jerry like runs off to the city and it's Rhapsody in Blue is playing in the background. Oh, wow. Uh, and he's like exploring New York City from, you know, he's like left his country home behind. Uh, and like all the bright lights and the jazz and, uh, you know, beautifully, beautifully, uh, drawn, uh, all silent. Well, I mean the music, but silent otherwise, uh, to, uh, and I feel like that really spoke to me. I was always drawn to, oh, I want to go to New York or I want to go to the city. Uh, but you want to have Gershwin playing in the background. Yes. Yeah. Jazz club to the whole. And I feel like, uh, ironically, the thing I missed as a child is that the whole point of that cartoon is that he ends up uh, coming back home. Uh, oh, wow. Being, and being glad to return home. Uh, and uh, I suppose that's where I sit now. But yeah, no, I grew up, I thought, uh, uh, broadly speaking, I thought I was going to end up in science when I went to college. I thought nanotech in particular, and then uh, rapidly switched gears to orchestra management. Uh, and just because, uh, I don't know, I, took, I had the freedom when I went to college to to do what I wanted to do and not feel sort of like pressure from uh, family or from... I don't know, prior history or anything like that. I feel like you had gotten into one of the premier academic institutions in the world. So at that point, the pressure is kind of off. You would think, but so many people who go there are absolutely miserable. Like, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Most people hate Harvard because uh, they are, you know, they're pre-med or they're pre-whatever. And like, they there's all this family pressure. And my family was just kind of like, ah, wow, cool. I'm like, have a good time. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, did, you, did you start as... Um, you know, uh, a science major? Uh, no, I mean, I suppose nominally, but I think I changed within a week. Uh, of oh, wow. right. yeah. so you, didn't, you didn't even take a semester of... No, no. I, don't, I mean, perhaps some of it wasn't being fair to myself, but I think coming from, you know, I came from a, a school that uh, a lot of the AP classes that I took, I taught myself because they weren't offered. And I knew that if I was going to actually get into a big school, uh, I needed to kind of prove that I had like that, that extra gear because uh, I wasn't coming from, you know, a prep school or something like that. Yeah. Uh, the downside of that is that I'll, basically everyone else had been like taking college classes on the side since they were like 14. Uh, uh, right. And I was just so far behind in math and science uh, that uh, it just didn't feel like uh, it was going to, I mean, I would have, I actually probably would have paid at Harvard if I went that route because I would have yeah. spent all my time studying just to try and catch up. So yeah. To that, but yeah, I feel like you thoroughly enjoyed your time there. Yeah, no, I loved it. Yeah, I spent I spent uh, all my time. Uh, I mean, my my technical major was government and economics. My parents have always joked that my real major was Glee Club because I got <laughs> into that, uh, uh, which is a different from the TV show uh, Glee Clubs or the like the Harvard Glee Club, I should say, is a sixty voice male choir that does like very serious like Renaissance polyphony and classical music. Yeah, I feel like the name does Glee Club a disservice, you know, like yeah. they, need to, they need to rebrand a little bit. You know? Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it, but it was such a great, uh, such a great group of people to, I mean, it was such a tight knit group. Uh, and it's such a fascinating thing to be united. I mean, we were rehearsing, I want to say, three nights a week for two hours each time. Like it was a serious commitment to, yeah. to as a I, college. I feel like, you know, it's, 
to be, you know, in an environment like that with people who are just, um, you know, cartoonishly brilliant, not everybody finds fulfillment through their major. You know, there are people that like major in the Harvard Lampoon or the people that major in, you know, all sorts of, you know, they're exactly. dramatists that major in, you know, the stage, stuff like that. So, or the, um, or the Crimson, you know, all the journalists. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I, I, I like that for you now. Um, growing up in the Finger Lakes ABA, which I, I didn't I didn't realize until you just mentioned it, you know, what are your formative memories of the local wine scene like? Are there formative memories of the, of the local wine scene? Um, I have memories of the local wine scene, uh, but only because in the autumn, like all the other punters, we would go down uh, and we went wine tour. I mean, I couldn't drink, uh, but we would go to visit wineries and go leaf peeping. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, the, I mean, we were only 20 minutes away, so it wasn't like a big day trip. So lots of memories of especially going around Cuca Lake. I have a lot of memories of like Hammondsport. Oh, nice. And going to like Pleasant Valley and like the Great Western and, you know, because they had like the museum there. And Those are the OGs. Yeah. Uh, and my, you know, I mean, I grew up in a house. My parents would really like their like glass of wine with dinner. Uh, you know, it was not. And it was, I think, probably to, to their credit and to my everlasting benefit wine wasn't necessarily like a fancy thing for them uh it was just like the appropriate thing to have to relax and to kind of like enjoy a meal with mind you was this you know local non-vinifer wine or was this you know european fine wine as most you know modern americans understand it um i said and my grandmother really liked uh a local niagara yeah um, that was, and you know, that's very, very classic of what would have been grown and consumed around here uh, for much of the 20th century, uh, and still, still to this day. Uh, so that was her uh, wine of choice, uh, and she was usually over at the house. And then my parents, uh, nothing fancy, usually just like uh, various, like kind of bag and box red wines, uh, you know, uh, just something to to enjoy with the meal. Nothing uh, overly fussy, uh, but. Certainly more like uh, uh, vinifera wines, you know, not not a not local natives. I still feel like there's a local market for the uh, the Niagara's of the world. Oh, it's huge! I mean, we make one, and it's one of our most important skews uh, from yeah. a from a volume standpoint. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, that's kind of a, a fun departure, you know, for the sake of the wines we're drinking today. Because you have, as you know, the the owner and operator of. Uh, Red New, you know, this push and pull. So you make Niagara's of the world and, you know, that's fulfilling in one way, but, you know, you equally uh, need to find, you know, fulfillment through more arcane sort of experimental um, projects. How do you, how do you balance those two uh, at the winery, the Niagara's of the world, and then the, you know, uh, biologically aged wines that we're about to try? Um, well, from a broader perspective, I would say really, uh, pride ourselves at Red Newt in the cellar in making the, I mean, we, we say that we're trying to make the best wines in the world. Uh, and uh, that is not something we say lightly, even though it sounds hyperbolic. I mean, we really hold ourselves to incredible standards. Uh, and that, that holds true for the Niagara as well. I mean, we're, we put as much, uh, we're trying to make as great a Niagara as we possibly can. It doesn't matter that it's going to be world class Niagara. Yeah, and like, and it's something that I feel like people. It's so easy to become cynical in the wine industry, especially if you're dealing with sales sometimes, uh, and saying, "Ah, if it's sweet Niagara, so long as it's sweet enough, anyone's going to buy it." Uh, and that's kind of true. But what's also true is that the person who likes sweet Niagara 
knows the difference, whether they can articulate it or not, they know the difference between a well-made one and a poorly made one. Like yeah. they're, they're not just idiots for sugar, yeah. uh, you know? Uh, so to make one correctly is, uh, and to do a really good job of it does, one is reflected in your bottom line uh, and your reputation and two kind of uh, does check the box of we are trying to, you know, it does matter that we're taking this seriously. Yeah. Uh, you know, but I, you know, on the flip side, Niagara's pretty, uh, in some ways, a more straightforward wine to make. Uh, uh, and it is nice to have these small projects that are what really keep us kind of academically engaged uh, yeah. in, in, in different ways uh, and give us different outlets. The really fun thing I would say about, <laughs> not that we're trying Niagara, but a connection that I don't think I've ever put together is that I always call Niagara like the winemaking decathlon. Because uh, the goal of Niagara is to make a wine that tastes as much like the grape as possible. And that's really actually quite difficult. Huh. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's such an, it, it's a, I mean, it tastes so much like itself. It's also not hard, but to do it really, really well, it's one of those things you almost have to hit all of the technical parts of winemaking perfectly. Like you have to like rack it clean. You have to, you know, uh, ferment it at the right temperature and it, with the right amount of yeast and with the right nutrients. It's like, you have to hit all these like hyper-technical winemaking uh 101 things right on the mark uh and it's you know it's all those decisions uh there's not you're not, you're not trying to do like these artistic schwas of of uh and in a way it's kind of like a fun lineup with biological biologically aged wines because so much of that is hyper technical as well oh totally well but it couldn't be m more different in its own way from uh you know kind of preserving the purity of the juice as it comes off the um, you know, the crush pad, you know, for the sake of these biologically aged wines, it is a metamorphosis, you know, uh, it is, you know, this caterpillar into butterfly, um, you know, process where the end result couldn't taste more different than, you know, the, the raw ingredients. And, uh, it's, it's kind of fun to think about juxtaposing those two things. Um, uh, before we, we get into, uh, wines, um, themselves, Kelby, uh, you, uh, spoke to your, your Glee Cub major. How do you go from, um singing in you know this amazing world-class ensemble to uh getting your hands dirty in the cellar and you know becoming the finger lakes you know winemaker um you know superstar that you are i mean i think uh when i was in the glee club i thought my career path was going to be orchestra management because that seemed like a way i could stay involved in that world after college uh and uh i wasn't i didn't I wasn't going to consider sort of like professional singing as a career. Uh, that that wasn't the what was going to be a fit for me. But uh, but the arts management side felt like it would work. Uh, but the downside, the more I learned about arts management, in, incredibly important job though it is, uh, in a way you almost become alienated from the art, especially in the U.S. context. You almost become like you're almost antagonistic to the artistic direction sometimes uh, because you're the one who's trying to you know, make sure the bills are paid and the fundraising is done and, and all these sorts of things. Uh, and regardless of that, it's just it, the thing that I loved about the Glee Club was the hard work of rehearsal uh, and uh, trying to bring out this amazing artistic statement uh, after all this work that had been put into it in collaboration with other people. Uh, so, I mean, there's some obvious parallels to winemaking there, at least how I yeah. view winemaking now. Uh, I didn't know that at the time when I stumbled into wine. I stumbled into wine uh, while I was in Italy. I had a fellowship to travel there. It was just a straight stipend. And I was like, well, easiest way to extend the stipend is to uh, 
do this thing where I work on a farm in exchange for room and board. And then I'll get a few extra weeks in Italy, basically for free. Uh, and I landed at a vineyard and just kind of fell head over heels for it. Uh, so, uh, and I didn't know why I fell for it in some ways, but I, I was smart enough uh, to know I should give it a shot uh, if it spoke to me. So I, you know, fortunately graduated, came back home, uh, which was again, not the plan, but what a great place to just like throw your hat into the ring uh, and start working at a winery and apprenticing. Uh, so from there, it was kind of uh, uh, a much faster uh, or a much easier linear story. Yeah. Was there, I mean, was there an intentionality to that when you kind of got home and first threw your hat in the ring or was it more of a post-collegiate, you know, I'll try this out, see how I like it. Yeah, it was, it was more that honestly. I mean, I, I did take it seriously. I had like my Hugh Johnson wine guide or pocket guide and like went through the New York state section and like selected the best wineries out of that. And yeah, emailed yeah. Them. Uh, so I was taking it, I was, you know, I was, even if it was a bit of a flyer, I was taking it seriously. Uh, and uh, luckily landed at uh, a spot called Fox Run Vineyards, just south of Geneva, uh, with a legendary winemaker and kind of famous mentor of the region, Peter Bell, uh, and uh, loved it. You know, and it, the nice thing is that at least the production side of wine, it's so easy to know whether you like it or not. You just have to work like a six hours. <laughs> like it's really, if you don't, I don't know many, I'm sure there are examples, but I feel like if you're a winemaker and you don't love harvest, in some fashion, you're probably not meant to be in production long term. Like, yeah, well, I, I think it happens. It pretty much happens in a day. Like you get a sense, like working harvest for a day, of whether it's something that you find fulfilling or not. And there are a lot of people in the wine industry who, you know, want no part of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, and and the, which is totally fine. I mean, there's yeah. there's plenty of parts of the wine industry that I don't want any part of as well, but <laughs> uh, that I'm not naturally skilled at. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's good to you know that that like adrenaline of the harvest crush is uh, is something I love. So yeah, I know. That, I mean, the, and the work itself is you know much more menial than I think a lot of people uh, imagine. Oh yeah, I spent. I mean, my assistant winemaker Megs uh, usually gets the lecture from me every harvest when we're out in the vineyards, uh, where I like draw this like convoluted, complicated parallel between the work we're doing to like creation of overtones and Renaissance polyphony. Uh, <laughs> so it all, it all does come full circle ultimately. Yes. I, you know, I still listen to the music a lot. So no, that's amazing. Oh yeah. No. And I, I think, uh, well, that's a good, um, you know, it's a good segue because, uh, you know, Renaissance polyphony is kind of like the biologically aged wine of the classical, class, classical music world. You know, it occupies a niche. Uh, definitely. It is, certainly not the Niagara of, uh, you know, the, the classical music world. Um, how do you go about making this wine? So uh, we're talking about biologically aged wines uh, for the sake of this uh, program. Uh, and what we mean by that is wines that are aged uh, with headspace in the cask. Typically, when a winemaker is producing a wine, uh, they want to limit um, a wine's exposure to oxygen as much as uh, possible because you know oxygen is is the death knell of of wine to some extent or at least you know the the fresher fruitier dimensions of taste that most people associate with wine uh, in the case of oxidative wine or in case of biologically aged wine uh, they invite the growth winemakers invite the growth of uh, benign yeast uh, which is Spanish called flor on the top of the wine and that protects it from ox oxidation but equally creates all sorts of different um, you know flavors that people most commonly associate with sherry but can spring up anywhere. And uh, I think that's a common misconception when it comes to these wines. And 
my favorite thing about the, the two that we're featuring here is that, you know, this process of uh, making wines with this like bright, briny, savory streak is unique to a small southern corner of Andalusia in, in Spain. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, this uh, development of benign yeast on the surface of wine, uh, which we call floor, um, happens under the right conditions anywhere and everywhere. Um, and, uh, you know, that is something that is variously celebrated in more arcane corners of the winemaking world, uh, such as the Jura Valley. But it equally happens in uh, Western New York in the Finger Lakes, which no one in their right mind would associate with sherry. Uh, how did yeah. you, um, you know, come to from, you know, uh, your unlikely corner of the world produce uh, Pinot Gris as Pinot Sherry? Well, I mean, it starts with the fact that I love sherry. Uh, yeah. And uh, especially when I was falling in love with those wines, that was really the only uh, market available version of biologically aged wine in the U.S. It was even hard to find sherry, right? It's like you found Tio Pepe. Yeah. And like, yeah. I mean, certain, yes, cream sherries, those things. Yeah, yeah. But like things that have been that have this like saline, savory thing, uh, there there wasn't a lot of it uh, in the market. But I love them. Uh from trying them and having them with the right food. And then I'm uh, speaking of like secondhand knowledge or a crazy journey to get uh, a sherry style in the Finger Lakes. I picked up what I knew about it from uh, working in the Barossa Valley in Australia, uh, where there is a very old tradition of fortifieds and sherry wines uh, going back at least a hundred years, if not longer. Uh, and there, they're also equally unpopular. They used to be big, they're not <laughs> much anymore. Uh, and I was at Yolumba at the time, and Yolumba, like many of the old uh, or bigger, more established houses, still had a little bit of a fortified program. Well, people uh, sleep on the extent to which, you know, historically, fortifieds outpaced um, unfortified wines in sales. So yeah. uh, it was a big moment in the American market in the 60s when um unfortified wine outpaced fortified wine which is why like your average you know uh you know depression era you know drunkard was getting drunk on on wine but it was fortified wine mm -hmm. you know it's why they're they're winos and it was like you know probably gross but you know at least you know 19 20 percent alcohol yeah yeah, yeah. and uh, this is like i mean this goes back centuries you know this used to be like the the uh wine merchants or the english merchants in bordeaux or you know like they would make a wine they would like pick up the wines from the chateau and then get it like ready for market in london by fortifying it and adding grape must like this yeah. is this is this is something that's been going on a long time to like well, it's, it's funny too because i feel like we have consumers have this kind of really precious notion of wine coming their way in an unadulterated you know pure estate from the vineyard and historically that couldn't have been further from the truth for the sake of you know, how mar how merchants, individual merchants were, you know, uh, kind of uh, adapting and trading these things throughout the world. Yeah, yeah. So in the Barossa, and probably in many places in Australia, but uh, fortified were really important, uh, historically, hugely important historically. Uh, and the uh, sort of biological side were always explored as well and always known. Uh, so when I was at Ilumba, there was a like many other spots, they had a kind of almost like semi-retired winemaker, and his name was Zimmy. I don't know why uh, all of these people were uh, like old and, you know, they seemed <laughs> like 
Do do winemakers ever fully retire though, Kelby? I feel like no, no, they don't. I think that's how it happens. <laughs> They're always semi-retired. <laughs> so but they would have like this wine maker who was, you know, uh, getting on in years, and like his like go- job was to take care of their sharing program. Uh, and it's a great job for some retired winemaker. Oh yeah, and this is like something that was pretty common throughout the valley. Like they all have like small little holdings, and you have you know some some guy who takes care of them. Uh, and I got along with him and talked to them a little bit. He was kind of like a ghostly figure. He would just like appear and disappear at random. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I got to taste through the barrels with him and got he's like a, he's like a Merlin. Yes, he really was. <laughs> Unfortunately, right before I left, he emailed me his like. For lack of a better term, I know this is super unsexy to talk, say in wine, but his recipe, like oh, okay. how you like, and this, and it wasn't, it was, you know, this is like stuff that he had received from his forefathers. You know, it's like it goes back, like oh, this is what you need to do. Uh, so this is, uh, so on one hand, I had the love for this, love for these styles of fortifieds and wines, uh, and then because I worked for this, uh, worked at this company in the Barossa, I figured out or had the sort of like real world knowledge of how to actually execute on them. What What is this recipe, Kelby? And I, I feel like we put the cart before the horse if people are hearing fortified and they don't know what the hell we're talking about. Uh, fortified wine is just wine that has a certain amount of spirit added to it. Yep. Um, uh, so uh, how much are you willing to divulge about this, you know, chartreuse level uh, secrecy embedded in uh, this Australian sherry recetta? Oh, tons. I mean, it's, you know, it's, I feel like the wherewithal to attempt it is the bigger hurdle. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the thing is, is that uh, the style of uh, benign yeast that we're looking for, or we're trying to select for, uh, you know, m- vaguely speaking, or mo- you know, generally speaking, kind of like uh, sherry style floor, really uh, preferentially prefers a very tight range of alcohol in the uh, that it can thrive on, but not so much that it kills it. And it's a really, I mean, it's like a 0.75% range. It's a pretty tight little window. Goldilocksy. Yeah. So it's like 15 to, I mean, like just below 15 to like 15 and a half is really right. where you want to be. Yeah. Uh, so we do that with neutral grape spirit, uh, which historically would have been the, the way they did it. You know, they yeah. weren't uh, picking hyper ripe grapes. If anything, you're doing the opposite. You want more neutral grapes uh, yeah. usually uh, for the base wine. Uh, and then you leave a certain amount of headspace. Uh, you have it fortified correctly, uh, and so long as your TA, your acidity, and your pH are also within the right range, which is to say, not too. You don't want the wine to be. If the wine's too flabby, for lack of a better term, you might get the wrong bugs taking off in it. Yeah, uh, they often uh, in in the sherry triangle, uh, they almost universally acidify uh, yeah. uh, the yeah. wines. I mean, this being a very hot environment, and Palomino, honestly. The the you know kind of core component of sherry blends not always retaining acid as it as it ripens. Yeah, so uh, that's that's exactly correct. Uh, but you also need it to have uh, enough acidity, uh, or sorry, uh, not too little. Uh, one on one hand, not too little, but on the other hand, you don't want too much, uh, which is more our issue in the Finger Lakes because uh, if there's too much, then it also kind of selects against the, the type of surface yeast you're going to get. Oh, interesting. Then nothing grows. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, something would grow, but or or maybe the wine would just like weirdly oxidize, not yeah, a, uh, not in a way that is. Uh, well, yeah, it would, it would oxidize more like Oloroso sherry as opposed to you know a biologically aged one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is there just an element of faith that comes along with making these wines for the sake of establishing these preconditions, and then just you know 
having the confidence that, you know, this magical blanket of microorganisms will ultimately bloom? Yeah, I mean, in our instance, we're absolutely George Michaeling it. Like we're just because <laughs> you can you can find like, that's a that's a faith that's a faith you got to have faith references. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you just you just we did you missed karaoke you missed staffed karaoke last night, Kelby. I thought I thought uh, of, I was wondering what your karaoke song would be. Um, oh man, I don't know. Phone a friend to find out. It's like <laughs> yeah, but but now now you're on the hook for uh, for George Michael. Uh, I can I can always be I, the one that I really want to do is. Uh, uh, Vilkoman from Cabaret. I feel like that's <laughs> uh, I, I love that for you. It has to be a musical number. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, so it's uh, this uh, just fun uh, selection of yeast that uh, we've always just left, not to chance, because we're obviously trying to get the conditions all preset and, and push for it, uh, and uh, rather than just kind of like throwing our hands to the wind. Uh, but there are, you can find online ways now. I mean, you can just purchase the yeast. You can purchase floor yeast. Uh, but that's not something we've ever been interested in. Uh, yeah. So yeah, we, we do it. We, the first time we did this and actually the only prior time to this 19 that you're, that we're trying today is, was a 2012 made from Riesling. Uh, and, uh, we did it, uh, we gave it basically two, I'm going to forget now, maybe two to three years total with the, the floor. Uh, the trick is if you're not if you're not doing the sherry thing where you're refreshing uh, what's in the barrel with some new material, eventually the yeast run out of nutrients to keep going, uh, and the 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 veil kind of passes away. Right, that's the phrase. Uh, and then you can let it keep aging oxidatively at that point, or you can pull it uh, and bottle it. Uh, so in our instance, we obviously, uh, given that this is a 19, we're trying. We once the floor kind of passed off, we grabbed it and got it bottled up pretty quickly uh, before it started to oxidize. How long was it under floor? In this one, it was um, probably just shy of two years. Oh, wow. Really cool. Yeah. Um, uh, why did you decide on Pinot Gris as the base material for this particular offering? Um, it's a good question. I think my favorite grape for for sherry styles in the Finger Lakes is actually a hybrid called Vidal Blanc that is oh, it's, it's very Palomino-like. It's higher acid, but uh, but it's very Palomino-like in sort of being a blank canvas. Uh, but Pinot Gris has that blank canvas character to it as well. Uh, it not, I'm not denigrating the grape by like working with it. Uh, but in 19, uh, Pinot Gris would normally be a little bit too, I would say like a little too blousey for a, a Fino style or for, for this, for what we're looking for. But in 19, it was a really cool, remarkably high acid year. So you kind of had this nice marriage between uh, what the vintage was giving us uh, combined with this particular grape that worked out well for this style. Um, why did you decide after like a, a seven year hiatus to make this one again in 2019? Um, the honest answer is did that- you finally uh, sell through the 2012 thing? <laughs> no, yeah, honestly, yeah. <laughs> so I think we bottled the 2012 up in 2015. Yeah. It probably went on sale in 2016, and it was one of those like word of mouth sleeper hits or cult favorites because uh, yeah. there wasn't much of it, uh, and it became something we didn't uh, we didn't make more of it in the pipeline. Right after 2012, we we could have made more in 13, 14, 15, and had like a constant supply, but we didn't know if anyone would buy it, so we weren't going to do that. Uh, and so 2019 more or less ties right back to when the 2012 had been released and sold through, and there was clearly a market demand for it uh, to justify doing it again. 
have you subsequently made this wine uh, every vintage thereafter, or is it you know you know kind of a cellar replenishment whenever you know the local wine nerds uh, get through the previous batch of your biologically aged you know share equivalent? Um, it's we're somewhere in the middle. I've made I've got a couple others in process right now of this biological style. Uh, so we're not waiting for this one. This one's just about to be released. Uh, uh, we actually just got it labeled up last week. Uh, cool. so it will actually exist. Uh, and uh, so we're not waiting for that one to sell out before we start the next one this time. Uh, but then on the other hand, we do have, I don't know, probably four or five different oxidative sherry styles that we've been working on. And those, but those take forever. Like the, the, the original of those dates back to 2012 and that's still not bottled yet. So have you, you know, making this wine more frequently, have you, what have you learned about the process of working with, you know, floor in the finger lace? Um, I think, you know, the, it's such a technical thing to work with. And the technical thing we've realized is that the hardest thing is to keep it going through the winter, just because the temperature oh, right. such a, can be such an issue. So it's nice. We have, we have a, a, uh, a new building that we primarily use for bottling that has much better sort of uh, heat heating abilities and also just insulation and energy efficiency. Uh, so that stays a nice temperature right through the winter, uh, which is works out perfect compared to our frigid old cellar. Uh, and then, I mean, the one nice thing is that the Finger Lakes, we always kind of grumble about how humid it is here, uh, which is a problem for growing grapes. But in terms of floor, uh, growth it's perfect you know like the more it, that used to be the sort of like marketing shtick uh and it's true i mean it does make a difference but you know when they would talk about the sherry triangle is that oh you know you're close to the sea and you have this humidity and that helps the floor stay thicker and uh, protect against further oxidation and like we see that 100 percent with you, the more humidity we have here you don't have the marketing gimmick of the ocean you just have the marketing gimmick of the you know east coast uh, yes 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 <laughs> the, the east coast and the gigantic lake on our <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah exactly um no that's that's really cool and and i think about that in the context of you know so the kind of apotheosis of this style the thickest floor comes from san lucar de Berameda, which is um uh one vertice of the sherry triangle uh this being you know the three you know major centers of production in in the sherry region uh one of which is essentially um most proximate to the ocean and and that's san lucar and um uh their phenos are so delicate and you know the influence of this floor is so strong that they actually have a different name um for the wines which is uh, manzanilla which is um variously thought to refer to the 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 taste uh kind of like green apple like um mm. uh but um i i like that hadn't occurred to me but i i like that uh you know um a potential you know for the sake of of wine humidity and grape growing humidity is such a um stigma you know it's such a problem yeah. um uh, for a plant that doesn't like to have its feet wet but for the sake of sherry it's a virtue um it, it's kind of cool to to work with that yeah all the all things in balance as it turns out yeah uh now how do you feel about the 2019 having kind of so you you made the 2012 riesling we actually we tried a bottle of that together on uh um very ill-fated version of this uh, episode of this podcast previously um uh how do you feel about that that iteration compared to the one derived from pinot gris um i i mean they're both they're they both are successful uh but it is interesting the riesling i feel like leaned more heavily into 
somewhere almost in between Fino and Manzanilla uh, uh, in terms of its mouthfeel and its presence. I mean, obviously there's more acidity there with the grape. I feel like this Pinot Gris one uh, uh, feels more like Montilla, right? Like it feels like it's the more the inland side of the Sherry Triangle. So like yeah. we're getting super nerdy here. Like, but no, that really, the actually reminds there. me of this. Um, uh, Kelby, we have a Fino at the resto. Montilla Morales is, uh, uh, is a zone... Typically, it's it's inland from the Sherry Triangle. Typically associated with a different grape, not Palomino, called Pedro Jimenez. Um, and they do make from occasionally they make finos of it and from it. And uh, there's a, a bodega called Alvear that makes a mm -hmm. vintage dated fino from Pedro Jimenez that this this reminds me a lot of. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. And and they're they're different wines. I think this is in its own way maybe a little more approachable than the the Riesling. Um, yes, uh, I would say so. But I equally like the the Riesling just had this verve um, and this, you know, Benjamin Button youthful streak for 2012 that that was pretty, pretty remarkable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and and I think it's, it's kind of fun, too, to think that even after, you know, years on end um, of, you know, winemaking manipulation, the the source material is still kind of recognizable you know it's it's, yeah. definitely, it's definitely transformed but you know if you if you squint if you you know kind of uh put humpty dumpty back in the, in the right way it's it's still there yeah no it absolutely is i think that's that's uh one of the more rewarding parts of working on this this process and it's i even say the same with dessert wine sometimes it's so easy to think that like you know, a botrytized or ice wine is going to like blow what the grape is or where the vineyard sourcing is out of the water. But uh, uh, time and time again, you know, you sometimes you have to squint more or less, but like it's still there. Like you, you know, you can't, uh, if you're being careful in the winery, you're not going to obfuscate where the, where the source material is. Yeah. And, and you shouldn't, you shouldn't want to. Um, so uh, for the sake of the other wine uh, in our lineup today, uh, we're trying uh, a, a French biologically aged wine. This is arguably the most famous French um, biologically aged wine. So uh, Chateau Chalon is uh, lovably nerdy. It is a designation of origin in uh, the Jura. The Jura um, is a mountain range separating France uh, from Switzerland. Uh, it gives its name to the Jurassic geological era because uh, it was a a time of shallow sea formation and uh, a lot of the major kind of calcareous, um, you know, uh, custom garment bearing rock in this corner of the world dates um, from, you know, that era millions of years ago. And for the sake of the local wines, um, it's a little bit of a, a forgotten corner of France. And there's this, um, you know, local style that has uh, persisted and endured where as in other corners of France, you know, things are, you know, more ubiquitously international. And um, that style is made a lot like sherry. So they start with different source material. Uh, in this case, Sauvignon, um, which is an ancient grape, um, uh, the parent of uh, many others. Uh, it ends up at the top of, uh, you know, these uh, diagrams of, um, you know, kind of uh, grape family trees. And and honestly, I feel like Sauvignon is a little more like Riesling than it is Pinot Gris. Yeah, I would say so. Um, uh, but, uh, it is, you know, sufficiently neutral that it works really beautifully, um, in these biologically aged wines. Now, uh, Chateau, Chalon, uh, Chateau Chalon is kind of the Grand Cru of, um, Bonjon, which is this, uh, uh, yellow wine, which is this style of, which sounds a little wrong. Um, but, uh, you know, is this name for this oxidized wine and traditionally, uh, barrel aged famously for, uh, six years, 
uh, on end unveiled there's a big um uh party uh when they crack uh the new barrels of this every every winter after six years um under floor and um it's bottled in this really distinctive bottle called the Clavin. Uh, the the mythology here is that, and there's 620 uh, milliliters. Um, the mythology there is that it's the amount of wine left over from a liter after the six years worth of biological aging. Um, and uh, the bottles are illegal stateside because the TTB has no sense of humor. Um, uh, and uh, so it, it's difficult to bring states. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a unicorn. You're seeing more of it. Um, and I do feel like the market for these wines has changed, uh, Kelby, in the, you know, since the last time, you know, you were, I feel like you were ahead of the curve a little bit in 2012 for the sake of your uh, love affair with Sherry. But by 2019, I think people are starting to, uh, or, you know, in, in markets like New York have definitely gotten firmly behind these styles of wine. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, it's it's a it went from being like niche and unheard of to like niche and kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's funny how that happens. Um, I mean, you know, speaking kind of cool. Well, yeah, it, it goes from like niche niche being like limiting to niche becoming a virtue. You know, like uh, um, yeah, niche yeah. becomes part of niche becomes an important part of the brand. Um, and uh, that's definitely the case for Chateau Chalon. Um, how would you compare this to um, your Pinot Gris, sir? Um, I mean, it has a little bit more uh, verve and freshness to it, I would say. Uh, you know, I feel like in some way, and maybe freshness is the wrong term, but I feel like in some ways the, the Pinot Gris is wearing its biological side a little bit more on its sleeve to me than, than yeah. this is. Uh, and and this is a beautiful wine. I mean, it's there's... That's not a that's not a complaint by any means, uh, uh, or a fault on either side. Uh, it's just kind of how they're expressing themselves and how they're expressing how biological yeast impacted them. Yeah, and I um, the conventional wisdom with a lot of these wines is that you open them well in advance of when you want to serve them uh, because uh, they're a little closed off, a little tight at first, and uh, I feel like my bottle's kind of still, um, you know, in that phase. It, it feels a little uh tight and there's just like this racy acid streak and i'm kind of curious what is you know waiting to emerge um because i find wines like this you know they, they do blossom you know that happens you know with uh you know most of my favorite greatest like acid driven wines you know riesling shannon you know they they are sometimes unremarkable the greatest of them uh mm -hmm. at, at first but then you know you give them an hour and you revisit and it's just like holy hell they're these like you know, untold depths that you previously, you know, only, you know, could, um, you know, squint and see. Um, yeah, and yeah. I feel like this one has a little bit of that. Absolutely. Um, how much uh, Vinjon makes it to the Finger Lakes? And a not insignificant amount. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but I mean, I, I guess I'm speaking from a slightly more privileged position in Geneva because we have a spot like, uh, a, you know, a couple of restaurants here that uh, are really wine geeky and sort of kind of cater to the wine industry. So uh, finding uh, Van Jean at uh, either Kindred Fair or at one of uh, uh, Christopher Bates's restaurants is uh, probably not, is probably there every time. Uh, yeah, I, I love, I do love that about the, the Finger Lake scene. I, I, there is this thirst um for you know wine from you know uh, 
I think people are looking for wine from comparable climates and, and similar, but they're, they're, um, it's very, it feels very outward facing. You know, I, I think some wine, some wine regions feel, can feel insular, you know, and then like the only wine they drink is, is their own, but I've never gotten that sense about, about the Finger Lakes. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I mean, there's always, there's always a risk of some of that. And I think that's just always going to happen in any wine region to some extent, but as a region, uh, both the people working in it and the people living in it, there's, uh, I would say a positive amount of curiosity about looking outside the region. Is there anyone else in the Finger Lakes making biologically aged wine? Um, I don't think so. Yeah. If they are, it's not something that they've released yet. I, I mean, there's so many uh, sort of, there's this great generation of younger winemakers of which I'm certainly part of as well uh, that uh, have, are you know, kind of exploding with ideas. So I wouldn't be surprised if someone else is, is tinkering with it now, uh, just because why not? Yeah, it's, uh, but not not something that I know of now. But you're, you are entering the, you know, kind of cultivator of talent uh, phase of, of your winemaking career too, Kilby. So I, I feel like uh, there is a younger generation um, that, that is coming online. And I, I feel like there could, to the extent that there is a biologically aged wine, in the Finger Lakes, it probably exists in some, you know, assistant winemaker's garage, you know, yeah. so, yep. uh, <laughs> uh, and, and uh, that makes me excited. That makes me excited for the trajectory of, of, of wines in uh, the Finger Lakes. Uh, how do you feel like the industry there has evolved uh, from, you know, when you kind of first set your foot in the cellar to uh, what it's become now? Um, I mean, the big story in that span of time, so I started in 2009. 2009 was kind of the, uh, in some ways, sort of the uh, peak or conclusion of like one era of the Finger Lakes, it feels like. And I don't, I'm sure I'm somewhat biased because that's when I started. So I naturally would feel that way. But when you look at the sort of careers that were all, the wineries and the careers that were all at a peak then, uh, uh, there was a, a real, uh, important era that was happening then and kind of uh, giving birth to the next era. And that was an era that had really championed Riesling and dry Riesling because that was not a foregone conclusion. Uh, it had kind of birthed Cabernet Franc into the region, uh, really professionalized the winemaking in the region. So it wasn't as sort of like rustic. Uh, and I mean that in uh, like there's rustic good and there's rustic bad. And it was probably like uninformed rustic beforehand. Uh, it wasn't like, you know, for the sake of, of a Jean producer, you know, many generations strong and a, you know, domain that dates back to, I think the, uh, like the 15th century, it wasn't rustic that way. It was just like rustic, you know, in a inexpert, don't know what they're doing sort of way. Yes. Yeah. And like every, every year was totally different than the next. Cause there wasn't like a, yeah, they weren't, they weren't drawing upon a tradition. Uh, so the, the era that I came into uh, the end of was very, very prominent in uh, establishing like this this template for what Finger Lakes Riesling and Cab Franc could be and, and what a professional winemaker looks like in the region. Uh, but there was maybe a little bit of a hegemony of what like a correct dry Riesling was, right? There was this very kind of lockstep agreement about what that stylistically looked like. Uh, and in the years since... What did that, what did that stylistically look like? Um, uh, very like clean, lean, very like lean hard into the acid side of Riesling and what the Finger Lakes can do. Uh, and they, I mean, they can, they are beautiful wines. They can be spectacular wines. It's not a, uh, 
a knock on them. It's just that there wasn't uh, a diversification of what was considered correct, right? It was like that was the goal that everyone was shooting for, uh, roughly speaking. Uh, and I feel like in the subsequent, I don't know, 14 years now, I guess, 13, 14 years. I mean, when I came in in 2009, I was like one of the only young people coming into the region on the winemaking side. And now it's like there are rafts of them uh, and not just uh, – and, you know, the, the biggest change is you have people coming from outside the region to work in the region as as interns. You know, certainly we've always had people who got hired into the region from outside uh, who are professionals elsewhere. But to have people who want to come here as the beginning of their career uh, is totally different. Uh, and the proliferation of ideas that comes with that. No, that's really cool. Um, do you feel like it has made people more ambitious uh, for the sake of you know, the kind of standards that they're upholding in the, the cellar and the kind of wines they want to make? Yeah, I think it, I think it absolutely has. Uh, I mean, if this is a conversation for another podcast, probably, but the downside of that ambition can also be the sort of closing off as well and people starting to, like, draw up sides or... Uh, yeah, that's, it's hard. It's hard to remain, you know, kind of... Um, you know, it's hard to maintain a certain amount of equanimity and, and you know, collaboration uh, if people feel like they have intellectual property to guard. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, I think that's that's certainly the case in a lot of wine regions, you know. Um, and, you know, there are places like Burgundy where people are famously secretive. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, no one would tell you how they they made their wines. And, and uh, a lot of those places have opened up, you know, for the sake of... Uh, modern era where, you know, their interns are, are traveling more. I, I hate, I'd hate to think that, you know, as the Finger Lakes evolved, it becomes more closed off. But I mean, I, I guess it makes sense to some extent too. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it has a strong and it does have a long and strong tradition of sort of like the farm, farmer mentality of collaboration and helping, helping your neighbor out. And it'll yeah. be fascinating to see how uh, that remains as a bulwark against uh, what might come is, is, uh, yeah. Well, and I think the, the exciting thing about it, to your point, is that there are people, you know, on different sides of even just Seneca Lake making dry Riesling in wildly different styles. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you know, my hope is that people can recognize each of those wines as compelling in and of their own right and reflective of a certain, you know, uh, personality and intent without, you know, belittling or denigrating them or, you know, creating, you know, some kind of idea of, you know, a hegemonic you know, Finger Lakes Riesling style that everybody should be um, upholding. Yeah. yeah. Um, because, you know, biologically aged Riesling, biologically aged Pinot Gris certainly doesn't doesn't fit, in, fit into that, uh, um, you know, kind of school of thought. What other experiments uh, do you have lurking in the cellar, Kelby? Um, the biggest uh, one is is a multiple year experiment, which is a, a single vineyard Riesling Zect uh, that we've been working on since 2015 and have been making every vintage since 2015, but have not disgorged a single bottle of yet. Uh, wow. When that when we finally get around to it, uh, that means the first vintage will have had, what, at least seven years on lease now? Yeah. And, uh, and that'll be kind of the ongoing project. So, uh, in terms of like fun, exp I mean, I kind of mentioned the oxidative styles we're working with uh, and we're always tinkering around with other things, but uh, probably the biggest single experiment that people don't know about is that. Oh, that's cool. Um, what do you like about sparkling wine, uh, working with sparkling wine in the Finger Lakes? 
Um, I mean, we have such a, there, I guess there's two two things. One is that we have a great climate for it, right? We kind of naturally have a climate where you can get good ripeness flavor-wise, but still have the the correct sugar and the high acid that you want. Uh, so it's a region that really lends itself to sparkling, kind of in a way we lend ourselves to ro rosé as well, right? We don't have to sigillate yeah. uh, to make rosé, nor do we have to pick unripe fruit to make rosé. So it's, well, uh, And in a lot of years, you know, you have grapes that you might not want to uh, make, you know, yeah, red wine out of that are better suited for for pink wine. Yeah, and then the other thing with uh, sparkling uh, that I think is uh, has always been true and is even more true with climate change is that it's a great insurance policy because uh, you do get to bring the fruit in a lot earlier. You know, you're not oh heard. Yeah, you don't. You're not trying. You're not out there like with with our big important dry rieslings that we get a lot of accolades for. Like that's like you know a. a two months longer on the vine and you're like really gutting it out to get there to get that style uh which is not to say that sparkling wine's easier by any means but there is something on the vineyard side that uh, uh re reduces some pressure yeah yeah i mean if you're not worried about you know bringing in a crop that may or may not be waterlogged for the sake of a late rain then uh it's easier to sleep at night yes yeah to say the least <laughs> Great. Uh, well, I'm going to read a bit of verse uh, for you, Kelby, then uh, a couple quick questions for you to close things out. So uh, the bit of verse comes from a book that you actually uh, gifted to me. So this is from uh, Hanif uh, Abdurraqib, uh, who's a, a MacArthur genius grantee um, uh, writer of prose, writes a lot about music, actually, uh, and uh, a poet as well. Uh, this is called The Prestige, which is a, um, a kind of a nod to... Um, novel uh and and a, a moment in the magic trick um uh which is uh when you know essentially the um you know the the man that you saw is put back together or the rabbit is produced out of the hat um uh so the the every magic this is a quote from the book but uh this is not the poem mind you but it, it helps to understand the poem uh every magic trick consists of three parts or acts first part is the pledge uh the magician shows you something uh, ordinary. Uh, the second act is called the turn. The magician takes ordinary something, makes it into something extraordinary. Um, the third stage is something called the effect or the prestige, and this is the product of magic. If the rabbit is pulled from a hat, the rabbit, which apparently did not exist before the trick is performed, can be said to be the prestige of that trick. So uh, this is about uh, the rabbit called the prestige. In the moments before the eruptions of our cruelest corners pull us apart, friends, remind me to tell you of the times I've seen the way a good season has lingered in the hopes of dancing along our faces one last time, and how that has made me decide I must stay here. Wretched as a staying may feel, only the fool arms themselves with the tools of undoing and nothing beyond. I want to die a little less than I did yesterday and a little less than I did the day before offered the chance to make amends for what we have endured together. I will open the hidden vault. All heartbreak is a descendant of the untouched imagination. Into the hollow void I've left, I echo the names of all who have pulled me from the depths of my own design. And underneath the known haunting of invented darkness, I promise you it isn't all that bad. We can all mourn until the morning trembles out a celebration. Uh, thanks again for joining us, sir. I, I like I like the idea of uh, the prestige when it comes to winemaking. Um, uh, you know, it feels like um, you know the winemaking art is a little a little bit of of magic um, in and of its own right. Yes. Um, and you know, winemakers in their own way, uh, uh, magicians. 
Um, do you have a, another experimental project uh, that you'd like to launch that uh, you have have yet to above and beyond uh, Fortifieds and Sparkling Kelby? Is there like a vermouth in your future? Or? No, I, I mean, I'll, I might tinker with vermouth, but I'm just happy to drink well-made versions of it. Yeah. Uh, I think the one that is kind of in the kind of in the works that I'm excited on is a uh, uh, sparkling red. Uh, oh, nice! Of sparkling Shiraz, which I have a, a soft spot for, and is a woefully under uh, appreciated and undervalued wine in the U.S. So, um, and what are your your hopes for? You know, you kind of spoke to this this rising generation of, of winemakers that have actively sought out the Finger Lakes as opposed to. Um, you know, ending up there uh, through lack of jobs elsewhere. You know, I think about, um, you know, the Herman Beamers of the world. Herman came to the Finger Lakes as a trained winemaker because there was an opportunity and he happened not to be the firstborn son. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and and now I feel like you guys are getting the firstborn sons uh, and, and daughters and everybody else. Um, you know, what would you like to see from that generation as they, you know, kind of uh, launch their own projects throughout the region? Um, I think I, I'll be repeating myself to some extent, but I, I hope it's the the continuation of the collegial uh, uh, atmosphere of it that yeah. I think is something really unique and special to the Finger Lakes. Uh, this this idea of everyone working together and being friendly and not not uh, at at uh, at odds, uh, and that's that's going to be uh, that'll be um, a tough thing to maintain, especially as more and more money comes into the region and more and more uh, you know names uh but we'll we'll try that's what the conference is for too try and get everyone to work together yeah no it's 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 brilliant and um you know it's it's hard to maintain when you know suddenly uh you know the the winemaker starts to drive a really nice car and <laughs> and you know people start to you know uh i i don't know I, I always think about in the context of burgundy you know burgundy you know was until you know a, a generation or two ago you know pretty you know, a region with a long history, but, you know, one that wasn't, um, you know, buried in wealth the way, you know, Bordeaux historically has been, but now it's something else entirely. And I, I you know, I still love Burgundy, um, but, you know, it's not something I can afford for the sake of the most famous examples. And I don't want to blame Burgundy for that, but by the same token, it has inexorably changed the character of the place. Yes. Yeah. Uh, um, but I, I think, you know, the Finger Lakes is still sufficiently, um, and 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 lovably behind the times that you know hopefully that that won't happen anytime soon yeah that's my hope <laughs> uh brilliant sir well thank you again uh kelby russell uh for for joining us thank you uh for bringing the pinot gris our way um my hope is that we can bring this in is that is that a possibility you're going to send this out of state yeah no we'll send it out of state yeah, yeah. I'll, uh, oh, that, yeah. That, that is my pledge to you here and now that you will be able to try this wine at uh revelers hour um because if you've learned nothing, I want you to know that, you know, this uh, alchemy that happens for the sake of uh, this benign growth, uh, this benign blanket of beautiful floor on the top of aging wine is not unique to uh, the southern corner of Spain. It's not, you're not unique to Sherry. You know, the same bit of alchemy uh, can spring up in um, such corners of the world as uh, the Finger Lakes. Uh, thank you all for listening to us uh and uh we uh hope to see you uh shortly at at the revelers hour uh please stay tuned and stay thirsty for more of the universe in a glass